Welcome, fasting fitness friends. This podcast will be about sharing information and stories on fasting and fitness. Bill is a martial arts instructor, business owner, husband, and father. Lisa is a retired music educator, an ultra runner, singer, dancer, wife, and mom. We have both lost weight and found a healthier lifestyle combining intermittent fasting and fitness activities. We hope you'll join us as we share content that can help both mental and physical wellness. Please remember the information presented here is not to be taken as medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare practitioner before making any changes. Thank you for listening. Greetings, listeners. Hi, Bill. Hey, how's it going, Lisa? Great. Welcome to our podcast. Today we have an extra special guest because he's a brilliant man and he happens to be my husband. (laughs) And his name is Dr. James Porter. And Jim, can you tell our listeners what your degree is in? So my degree is in forest biogeochemistry. I'm an environmental scientist and I uh, study how chemicals and nutrients move through natural ecosystems. But with that, I have a strong background in chemistry and biology, and that has helped me to understand another favorite topic of mine, which is human nutrition and and exercise, exercise physiology, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So Jim is my husband. He's a long distance runner. He's also an intermittent faster. He is um, he does not have a weight problem. He does fasting for the autophagy and the reduction of inflammation. Um, And I asked him to join us today because uh, we were just chatting beforehand about the internet and about how people grab titles from articles or people publish blogs without um, finding out if the research is really valid. And Jim is going to help us and our listeners uh, be able to discern between things that are just uh, titles and things that are real information. Okay, Jim. So you want to start? Sure. I can kick this off. So one of my, um, you know, being a scientist, even though it's not strictly speaking in nutrition or fasting or that sort of thing, I know how to read research papers and I know how to understand experimental design and science and that sort of stuff. And um, in our, in our internet age, as Lisa said, uh, it's so easy to publish anything. Anybody can start a blog and, published stuff. Uh, about a year ago, I was reading a lot of stuff on Medium, which is a great a great platform. Um, but after a while, I, I started looking a little more carefully at the author bios whenever I would see something about nutrition. And more and more, I started to see that these people had no background in nutrition. And if you run down the things they're saying, very often you'll find almost verbatim statements in three or five or 10 other places on the internet. So this stuff gets picked up and repeated a lot. And um, to me, that's a red flag. It's not a green flag. It doesn't mean, oh, this must be right because everybody's saying it. It's I better challenge this because everybody's repeating it. And I think that's a that's a key thing we all need to do in trying to understand the information that's out there and use it to make good decisions for our health. So Bill, feel, feel free to jump in if you have any questions or, um, so. Yeah. The, so one of the, um, one of the most recent examples that we have of this is a study that is commonly referred to as the treat study, which is the, uh, it was a time restricted eating and something, something study. I, I don't remember the exact name of it, 
but the the study itself did an uh basically an experiment or a study on a small group of people and they tested uh, weight loss using the 168 or no sorry it was yeah it was the 16 i believe it was the 168 uh protocol that we that we you know is pretty common for maintenance and everybody that does intermittent fasting knows that that's a, you know it's a good starting point and it's a good maintenance protocol uh but it doesn't allow for enough time in autophagy so uh but the study itself came out and, and then so you know people wrote started writing articles about this treat study and saying fasting does not um align with weight loss when what you know really the study the study showed that that one protocol may not have but then there were there were a ton of other variables that they didn't account for um and didn't track appropriately so that's just one example uh that i know of of many where, where a study was done kind of improperly and then headlines were added to it kind of after the fact because that's what the person who did the study or the group who did the study wanted to show anyway. Yeah, unfortunately, we have far too much of that in nutrition and human health related research that people have um, a, a predefined idea of what they want to find. Um, it's not really unbiased science, unfortunately. And I, I wish I could say otherwise as a scientist, but um, that's not the case in nutrition and human health. So, so I have a, a really current example, not regarding fasting exactly, but um, I saw a headline. This is a study that was published in uh, the journal Nature Medicine just three days ago. And the headline that I saw somewhere else on the internet said, uh, tightly controlled study of a low carb versus a low fat diet shows that people eating the low fat diet consume 700 fewer calories per day and lose more fat. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I got to go look at that because I'm always skeptical of these things. So when I went to look at the study, I'm a little shocked by this because it was in a very good journal. The study used 20 people, two zero, 20. <laughs> and the study lasted four weeks. They used two different diets. So each, each person, they, you did one diet for two weeks and then you did the other diet for two weeks. Now, I think anybody can use the common sense test here and say two weeks, yeah. two weeks on a diet. And I'm going to be able to say, Oh, um, or draw, we'll draw any conclusion from that. Um, so I, those sorts, that's how these studies, and I don't think this study was that great actually. And then it gets picked up by people that don't know much about science and they just cherry pick out the little gems probably somebody in this case who didn't believe in a keto diet or a low carb natural food kind of diet. And so they picked out what they wanted and, and that was the headline that went out. And if you don't question that sort of stuff and try to verify it for yourself, your takeaway is, oh, low carb diets are bad for you. I need to eat low fat. And so, you know, it's not so much about diet here is again about the principle of this, that the study design really doesn't pass the common sense test and you don't have to be a scientist to know this. Everybody's done some diet in the past and you know that two weeks is not enough to draw a conclusion about whether it works or not. Right. And I, I love that you use you, the common yeah. sense test. Um, for, for those of us who are not, um, not scientists and not PhD doctors, uh, 
And what are some uh, maybe keywords that we can look for in an article headline that might suggest, hey, not, not to say like automatically this is a bad study or a bad article, but hey, you really need to look further into this before you make an educated decision. I, I think you need to do that in every single case. I, I don't even think you need to look for keywords or anything like that. Every single time I see a story that says, oh, a new study has been published, you need to go look for that yourself. Mm -hmm. You need to get the article and try to read it. Even if you're not a scientist, most of these articles are available online and you can read them. Anybody could look at this particular study and say only 20 people and only a four week study. That doesn't make much sense. So mm -hmm. I think you need to always, always go and verify for yourself whether this makes sense or not. And the ways to verify are, even if you're not a scientist, like I said, you can, you can go on PubMed and get an account for yourself and find most of these articles or search them out on the internet. Um, you can also go to your trusted um, people that you follow and often they'll be talking about these same studies or contact those people. If you have uh, someone say Bill McKinney, who you believe in or Lisa Glick, and uh, you want to get some feedback from someone you think knows more about this, contact that person and ask them what they think about it. Um, and, and also look for discussions of these studies across several different um, authors and researchers and see if you're hearing the same sort of thing about each of these studies. So it's one of the things I've seen is that in recent years, there's just been an explosion of scientific journals. And this is not a good thing, in my opinion. We've all heard the publisher parish that's been around since for decades, literally now. Um, I think it's even worse today. And it's made much worse by the fact that we have the internet where anybody can write a blog. Anyone with no experience whatsoever in that particular topic can grab a headline and put it out there to get themselves some some click throughs and some you know affiliate purchases and stuff like that. So um, it's really unfortunate, I think, that we have so many journals today publishing so many papers um, that are then picked up by so many often unqualified authors and put out there on the internet. Yeah, and I would just add, just because I've been living with Jim for a while and I've been learning. So you want to look at the source, like who's funding the research. Oh, yeah. So if like the breakfast cereals or the pharmaceutical companies are funding it, you might want to just look at it with a little bit more critical eye. That's a great point. And one of the things that uh, if you read the studies themselves in, in nutrition in particular, um, read to the end and you'll they will normally have a declaration of conflicts of interest um, along with who funded the study. Um, now, even those are not always reliable. There are a number of cases in the past couple of years where uh, researchers have failed to disclose uh, some apparent conflicts of interest. So, um, but that's a, that's a really good point. I hate, I'd hate to think that money is influencing scientists and what they publish, but the fact is it happens. And it, it seems pretty obvious that um, some of these studies that consistently find in favor of the funding organization that stands to make a profit from it, how is it that they always find the same thing? Um, even though others may be saying, I don't agree with your results, or there are other studies that disagree with those results. 
Right. And I, I also want to add that just because it's been a certain way for a certain amount of time, it doesn't mean that new research is not evolving to, um, to find changes. For example, like Dr. Jason Fong, who a lot of people in our audience might know, he wrote the, the fasting code and the obesity code. Now he just came out with a brand new book called The Cancer Code. And he, I heard an interview with him um, on another podcast and he's talking about, he believed cancer was caused by such and such because that's what he was taught. And now they're making new discoveries. So just because like things like calories in, calories out, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you, there's new research evolving, but you want to, you want to make sure it's coming from a reliable source. Right. Absolutely. You know, the world was flat <laughs> until it wasn't. That's, so that's an example I give people. So let's, Jim, let's talk a little bit about fasting because Jim, my husband is not heavy. He's never, ever been heavy, maybe for five minutes, like yeah. when he was newly married to his first wife, but he's very slender. He's also um, Irish and he's got very light skin. He's had um, several encounters, unfortunately, with skin cancer. Um, he's an ultra runner. He's run a couple hundred milers. We hike. He's super active. He's uh, 61. And we're, we're on a second marriage here. And Jim, why don't you tell our listeners about what brought you to intermittent fasting and why? Well, um, so interesting thing, maybe four or five years ago, I had a couple of experiences where I had to do long, fairly long drives, several hour drives. And, and these, these really just stick out in my mind, especially in, in hindsight. Now um, I did these drives and on those particular days, uh, I started early in the morning and I hadn't eaten. I was just drinking coffee and I drove and drove and drove and was making great time on my trip. And I was feeling so good. And both of those days, I remember I didn't eat until that night and I had not eaten since dinner the night before. So I basically had done a 24 hour fast and, and those still stand out in my mind as, as days I felt unusually good, calm, clear headed, um, just, just remarkable. And, and I remember thinking, boy, that fasting like that was really something special. Um, and then I, probably what got me going on it, um, in, especially in conjunction with exercise was about 10, 10 or 12 years ago when I was, I was still working, I took a new position which gave me a lot more time flexibility. So for all my life, I've been running for 40 some years. I was usually a lunchtime runner, uh, you know, go out at lunchtime on my job and, and run. Um, but with this new job, I had a lot of flexibility to go in a little later in the morning and I started running before work in the mornings and I would get up and run before I ate breakfast. And wow, that was such a revelation to me. I just felt so great. Lisa and I were doing keto, um, so it was a fairly easy transition. Um, you know, we'd eat a good dinner the night before, eating pretty high fat. So um, I, I, I think I've always fortunately had very good glucose sensitivity um, or insulin sensitivity, you know, good glucose, blood glucose management. And, um, and then we, as Lisa mentioned, we're ultra runners and we started doing long runs fasted and the long runs became longer and longer for a long time. We always carried some food with us we did. and we would eat sometimes, but yeah. the runs got longer and longer without having to eat. And it was just kind of a, a real awakening, a revelation that we really don't need to eat to run. In fact, I felt so much better 
when I didn't. So um, yeah, we felt like when we were able to not eat during a long run, we would, I remember this, we would get to a point where we were sort of maybe a little hungry, like maybe two hours. And we're like, let's just have some salt and push through. And we push through and then we would like come over to the other, come around the other side and we feel like amazing. And I don't know if you know much about long distance running, but a lot of ultra runners end up with some kind of stomach distress because they have to have calories to keep going and then things don't go right and they have issues. And so the advantage of not having to eat on a long run is you don't have to worry about stomach distress. Yeah. Yeah. Statistically, that's the number one reason ultra runners drop out of races. Yep. And the other thing is Jim, you know, had the, the history of cancer and we're long distance athletes and we're not spring chickens anymore. We're getting older. So um, he, of course, being the scientist, did all the, the lot of research on the fasting and um, it reduces inflammation. It um, helps prevent <laughs> cancer and Alzheimer's, which is a big concern. And um, can you explain, Jim, from the scientific view about autophagy? Can you explain well, that? Yeah, autophagy is basically just... Um, a process by which cells clean out all the broken parts that are inside them. Um, it technically means sort of self-eating. Um, and it's, it's a way for your body to clean up all the bad stuff and get rid of it. And if you're eating all the time, your body's too busy digesting food and dealing with all of the, the digestion byproducts to get into a state of autophagy. So that's why fasting is so beneficial because it gives your body a break um, from digesting all that food and gives you an opportunity to do some cellular cleanup. Yes. I'm sorry. So Jim, I was just going to ask Jim, did you know, like, did you research fasting before you started doing it? Or did you just say, Oh, like, like you said, I kind of just, you know, I started running when I, before I ate breakfast and it felt good felt great. So I you know, kept doing it. Um, so I'm just curious, did you, did you know about fasting and the benefits beforehand or did you kind of like um, experiment and learn about it as you went uh, because you, you yeah, were already uh, a runner? That's a great question. And I, I would say it was really, an, I became aware of it during running and feeling great. Of course I, you know, I knew about fasting and it was kind of during the same time frame, just over the last three or four years, um, two or three years, that it was starting to make the headlines. So I was reading more about it. Um, and, and, and eventually it became more of a conscious choice than just a, oh, this feels really good. I'm not going to eat before I run today. Uh, and started reading the research papers and said, well, it seems like there's some really good support. Uh, in the in the literature in the scientific literature for what we're doing here, so let's really make it a conscious choice to start doing this now. Yeah, I want to jump in. So um, Jim turned me on to like Dr. Jason Fung, and now we've been following like Ken Berry, and there's all these people. But I was um, in a little bit of a distressful place. I had just um, gone through my menopause, and I had just retired from my job, and I had all this stress, and I was like freaking out about my postmenopausal belly. So Jim being the supportive partner was, we, you know, first he got me on keto, you know, eating the whole foods, you know, low carb. And then, um, and then once a week I was doing a longer fast and he was like, Oh, that's cool. So he was helping me out. And I, I just want to put this out here. He's very slender. So when he eats, he eats. So he like feasts, and then he fasts. The man is very lean. He also um, does some weightlifting, so he doesn't just do cardio. And um, 
So I, I want to impress upon our listeners because this, our podcast is about fitness and fasting. So not everybody listening maybe has to lose weight. Maybe they just want to be stronger or healthier. Yes. All right. So you have some, you have more stuff? I do not have anything additional here. Um, so Bill, do you have any more questions for my scientists? <laughs> um, I do. I wanted to uh, go back and touch on real quick something you said earlier about um, the the fact that you know you you have to pay attention to who's funding the study. And one of the one of the most notorious examples I have of that, and again, I don't have nearly as much background, but just from reading uh, Dr. Fung's obesity code and the chapters where he talks uh -huh. about the American Heart Association and how, um, you know, you, not necessarily a study, but companies could basically purchase the American Heart Association logo um, to use on their product. And there wasn't any like nutritional study or verification done for the companies who were allowed to purchase. It was just, you give them money and you're allowed to use our logo saying that this is a American Heart Association approved product. Um, and so that was just something that I, when, when you mentioned that, I thought that was really, really important that people really need to go back and look. If, if you're looking at a study of any kind, um, it's absolutely imperative to pay attention to who's funding it, um, and like you said, who's writing it, uh, this is kind of a related but unrelated example. I own a martial arts school and a couple of years ago, I hired a company to help me promote my school. Uh, and they said they specialized in promoting martial arts schools. That was, that was their business was working with and, and building martial arts schools. So I made the assumption <laughs> that they were martial artists. Um, and after a couple months of their content rolling out and me being like this really like this just doesn't fit what I do. And it doesn't, it doesn't match what, with what I know as a 30 year martial artist, um, started questioning and found out that basically nobody in the company had any martial arts experience whatsoever. They saw a niche, um, that had a need and thought that they would try to fill it with just their marketing, um, knowledge and it did not work. So yeah, definitely. I just wanted to go back and touch on that. People really pay attention to who's paying for what and whether or not they actually have the people, whether or not the people actually writing the article have the background to interpret that study appropriately, because it, uh, you know, it can get super, you can get into some super murky waters when people who aren't qualified to write articles about scientific yeah. information start yeah, absolutely. doing that. So, and on, on a, Makes me think of something else here. Um, there are a number of researchers out there that have some pretty known biases. And I would say as you, as you read the literature and, um, and read more about nutrition and fasting, et cetera, try to be aware of that and try to, try to look for third party evaluations of those researchers. When you see a name come up time and time and time again, that could be a good thing, or it could mean that they are, and I'll, I'll use this example um, because it's, it's come up a number of times. Um, you may be a vegan, you know, very promote a vegan diet very vigorously. And you may be a researcher who 
tries to use their research to promote that particular um, way of eating. And, and there are a couple of good examples of this out there. I'm not going to say any names, but um, so when a particular person keeps saying the same thing over and over and over and over again, be sure to verify. Maybe they really do know what they're talking about, or maybe they have a hidden agenda here. And that, that can be hard to figure out, but um, sometimes third parties can help shine some light on that as well. And looking at the conflicts of interest can mm -hmm. be a huge thing. When you see someone that, um, for example, is publishing not in the scientific literature, but maybe they have a blog or maybe they sit on the board of a particular entity that would suggest a conflict of interest and would be consistent with the position they're espousing in their scientific papers, then you really have to question those papers very carefully. Great. So while we have Jim here, um, yeah, I, I hope I'm not catching you off guard, but uh -oh. um, you know, <laughs> I are runners and there's um, some of the old dogma in the athletic community is you have to eat before, you have to do the pre-workout, you have to eat after. So Jim, can you explain a little bit how we um, are not going to die if we don't eat <laughs> before. We yeah, run. it's simple. And we're not going to die if we don't eat. And our muscles aren't going to deteriorate <laughs> to nothing if we don't eat five minutes after we finish our long run. Can you explain that for well, our, our exercise? So, program? I mean, there's a couple parts to that. If One of the biggest ones has always been you have to eat, especially after a long run or a hard workout, you have to eat a carbohydrate-rich meal and maybe put a little protein in there within a 30-minute window after you finish your workout. Well, um, it is probably true. I don't keep up on this literature, but I think it is correct that if you do a hard workout, eat a carbohydrate rich meal within 30 minutes, you will replenish your glycogen stores, your muscular and, and liver glycogen stores much more effectively than if you wait longer to eat a meal. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to do that. And, um, you're not going to die if you don't do that. <laughs> and we are die. perfect examples of that. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I think our own experience in running while fasted, um, and my experience starting to run in the mornings before work, um, clearly demonstrates that you don't have to eat. And now what I find is if I do eat, well, I haven't probably eaten before a run in, in three, four, I, five I years. Um, but the couple of times I can think of where maybe we, we went out late. I, I can remember a couple of days we went out late, like on a weekend right. because it was the weather was bad or whatever. And I felt like, oh, I'm going to eat before the run. And I had a terrible run. I, I totally bonked um, because uh, I wasn't I wasn't used to trying to burn dietary calories instead of my own. <laughs> fat and circulating fatty acids. So right. And even if you're thin, there's still you have fat stored. Can you, you have explain thousands that? and thousands okay. of calories of fat stored? Your body, job number one is energy. Your your body is always going to find a way to get the energy it needs to live. And we all can burn fat or burn carbohydrates. People that eat a standard American diet, a high carbohydrate diet, well their bodies are biased towards burning carbohydrates, but if they don't get any, they can burn fat and you have lots of fat stored on you. Even the leanest people have thousands of calories of fat stored throughout their body and your body will switch to burning fat if it needs to. You may have a rough period there if you're out doing some exercise right. the switching or doing, yeah. doing uh, some activity, but 
uh, it will switch over for you. And I think most people have experienced this. If you have, for whatever reason, not been able to eat during an activity, during a busy day or something like that, you have a period of feeling like really hungry and then it gets better because yeah. your body shifts, your metabolism yes. shifts to burning yeah. the fat that's available and, uh, and you will survive. So what I want to say to our listeners is it's really important that just because you might feel a little shaky or a little weak, you're not going to faint. Often if you can just push through that, whether you're exercising or you're just hanging out at home, if you push through that, then you might get another surge of energy. So what about yeah. yesterday? Well, yeah. well, yesterday we ran with a friend and she had to eat every 30 minutes, every 30 minutes. I was like, and we only did like 10 miles, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh my goodness, she's a triathlete. And I'm thinking, wow, that, that just changes the game. That she has to carry food with her and she has to worry. And we're like, we just went out with our water and our salt. And we had, we ate like two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to mention something um, you mentioned earlier, take some salt and some water. Yeah, my, my experience, our experience is that if you are feeling a little shaky, a little funny, often just salt and water will will fix that problem pretty quickly. Right. And just disclaimer, obviously, if you're feeling like really dizzy, like you're going to faint right. or extremely nauseous or the room starts spinning, then obviously, please eat. We're talking about just minor things. If you're if you're um, working or trying to learn how to do a little bit more activity in the fasted state. Yeah. How's that, Bill? That's that's all fantastic, and I know I have. Uh, I, I think I've talked about it with you before, but um, Lisa I, 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 Jim, I had a couple couple different experiences with running and fasting. I haven't done any of the long mileage, which I want to ask you about in a little bit. Um, but that you know, I had I did a month of heart rate training, where the entire month I didn't let my heart rate exceed 135 BPM. Um, and there, I had a, I had a couple of runs in that month where I had no choice because of my, just the way my schedule worked out for the day, but I had to eat before I ran oh, and I could not control my heart rate. Um, even walking up a little tiny hill, my heart rate was, you know, hitting 140. And I was like, what is going on? I run up this hill every day and I don't hit 130. Um, and, but it was, you know, it was my body saying, Hey, You've asked me to now you've asked me to burn fat and process this food <laughs> and you want me to keep your heart rate down like my body was just going what is wrong with you you can't do three things at once um so why would you expect me to uh and then on the flip side of that I had a longer run for me it was about a it was about a 10 run mile run that's my long run right now <laughs> and I ran, you know, I, I got up and early and I, and I just put on my stuff and I, and I just left the house and I didn't bring my water. I didn't bring anything. I just went. Um, and I was, I was at about three miles in and I was like, Oh no, I'm hungry. Like all of a sudden, just this wave of hunger. And I was, you know, like I said, I was about three miles away from home at that point. So I was, well, I still have to get home. I might as well run so I can get food quicker. And it was about five minutes into that second part of that wind that I felt switch. that I yeah. literally physically felt that switch where my body went, Oh, you're not going to put food in here. Okay. I'll look for the fat that is in here. And I, you know, there's plenty of fat there. 
Um, and the rest of that run was yeah. I believe probably so the best so run I've really ever had. So that's really important what you just um, verbalized, Bill, because that's what we're trying to explain to our listeners. Because in the Facebook communities, we see this where people say, oh, I went out for a three-mile run and it was so hard. But sometimes you have to go a little bit past the three miles and then your body goes, oh, I get it now. Right, honey? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Jim, uh, one of my questions for you that I have is what's the longest you've run fasted? So what's the longest you've gone before you said, OK, now my body does need something? Well, I ran um, the Tucson Marathon. And I'm going to take care of that now. Last year fasted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot or two, two years ago, I guess. Was, oh, so yeah. you did. You, yeah. He ran yeah, a whole road. Now, mind you, this was a road marathon, and he was pushing it, and he ran on zero calories. Yeah. He brought, yeah. he did have salt. You had salt. Yeah, yeah. And it was in the pot. So, was, yeah. So, oh, yeah. 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 Yes, it is. Salt yeah. is so, still um, fasting. So I've, <laughs> I've done marathon distance. <laughs> you brought something um, with you just in case, but you made the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. Um, that's probably the longest I've done. You know, we we've done longer training runs and certainly longer races, but I would say I probably start eating by 20 or 25 miles in the longer events. Yeah. I usually go 20. I did do one 50 kilometer, um, slowly here by myself, a solo thing. I did 30, um, 50 K is 30 something miles. I did it completely with zero calories. Mm -hmm. And my friends in the athletic community were flipping out. People were messaging me. Are you okay? And I'm <laughs> But I'm slow, so it's it might be a little different for people who are fast. Like, yeah, I think it it's going to vary depending on how you know your effort level, or your your at least right. your perceived effort level, because that's different for everybody, right? Um, Jim running twenty six miles, um, probably wouldn't feel nearly as awful as I as I do when I finish ten. Um, so, right. yeah, so that's I, just I because that's sure what you're used to. You do it all the time. Understand that we can just um, go, oh, yay, and went out and ran 20 miles completely fasted. We walked up to it like we did five miles fasted, and then we're like, oh, right. and we did nine, and then you know, 12. So mm -hmm. it was, an, it was, yeah, and we, like I said, we used to carry food with us, and we were case. finding, we were finding that we didn't need it. And we would go longer and longer and longer before we did start to eat. Right. Oh, and I just want to mention that I do, like if I know I'm doing a long run um, in the morning, I'll make sure the night before I have a really nutrient right. dense meal, we'll have like beef and lots of fat. And we're not going to stuff ourselves, but we make sure we have a really high quality nutrient mm -hmm. dense meal going into um, the next morning of a long run. And then what about after the run? So uh, we've talked about the, in, you know, the intestinal distress that long distance runners get. Is there, uh, do you, do you have a preferred uh, fast breaker, at, especially when, when you're running and you're, you're doing long runs, do you have a preferred meal or snack that you like to start with that kind of eases your um, body back well, into that <laughs> fed state? What? No, you're just, my husband is like a rock. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> One of my favorite things to start with is macadamia nuts. They yeah. just work really well for me. It's funny because I saw somebody put a post on some Facebook mm -hmm. page once and they said, don't ever eat macadamia nuts to break your fast. They're terrible. And I thought, wow, that's like the best thing ever for me. So that's a, that's a good example of how people need to find their own, <laughs> uh, their own way. And it's different for everyone. So I'll often yes. start with macadamia nuts and um, 
Yogurt. I'm very good with dairy, fortunately. Yogurt um, and dairy. So I make, he makes his own yogurt. I make my own yogurt okay. and, and I actually add sour cream to it. Um, whole, whole milk yogurt with sour cream added to it. And I'll throw in a few berries and some nuts. And that's a, that's a very common fast breaking meal for me. And it, it works very well for me. Yeah, I can nice. eat, I can eat just about anything. Now, as we've moved more towards a carnivore okay. diet, I find jumping right into meat and a heavier, mm -hmm. heavier first meal after my workout and my fast is working just fine as well. Yep. So that's a, that's a yeah, I know for myself, the uh, higher fat um, meats, like even like I, I I'll often oh, break yeah. my fast nice. with uh, dried salami and nuts and uh, things like that. You should share that. Uh, share your recipe for okay, your yeah. yogurt in the in yeah, our Facebook it's whole, group. It's whole fat. And I'm sure I a lot of people would enjoy that. Fast. Um, mo most often I'll do a bone broth. I just started making my own in the Instant Pot. But for me, bone broth with a little butter in it and a little cream, it's, I just feel like it's going whoosh into my body and nourishing everything and, and it coats my stomach. And then I'll have like a real meal. I'll have, I'll have bacon because, you know, I'm, I'm a meat eater or something like that. So. Great, 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 great info. Um, and then there was one other question. Let me see, where did I have it? I had it written down here. Um, oh, what? so uh, Jim and I think, Lisa, you've done yes, but Jim's the 100 mile, <laughs> 100 mile as well, correct? This is more than me. <laughs> um, so the, the 100 mile, the, the, the 100 mile runs are something that absolutely fascinate me and are something that I want to um, explore being able to do at, at some point in the future. So like I said, right now, my long run is about 10 miles. What, uh, what training advice can you give to somebody who maybe is interested in transitioning from long or from, I guess, short runs, which uh, could be classified as anything less than a half marathon, I believe, um, and then, you know, transitioning to those longer runs and building up to a hundred miles well, other um, than just run more. Really? It's, it's time on feet <laughs> yeah. is what we consider it. So, um, a lot of our training isn't running. Right. We incorporate a lot of long hikes, a lot of hiking. And, you know, people say, oh, I ran a hundred miler. Well, there are a few people in the world that run hundred milers. Most of us <laughs> do some running and a lot of walking and hiking during those events. So climb on feet is really a big part of it. You also have to lose the mm -hmm. mindset. If you're someone who ever does any road races um, or primarily runs on roads um, and you're, you know, you're really focused on your time, you need to lose that mindset. And again, think about time on feet, um, miles covered and um, just accept that you don't need to run every step of the way. The goal for many of us in doing ultras is to finish the distance within what some prescribed time, you know, the, the hundred miles I did were 36 hour time limits. Um, right. So as long as I can get through it in that amount of time, I'm okay. So my training is focused really just on being able to tolerate many, many, many hours of moving forward. Yeah. And I would recommend like maybe put your eye on a 50K first, which is 32 miles. And 
um, you want it on trails. You're, I know you're in Colorado, but um, yep. so this thing about, I always tell people there's a lot of walking in my running right, yeah. Honey? Yeah. and, um, and time on feet. So I, you know, even if you're walking your dog or you're just like walking to the mailbox, you just count all that endurance and also cross training. You know, we did mm-hmm. some cross training and maybe um, uh, of uh, terrain that's specific to the event, like whether it's got a lot of hills or a lot of flat, that kind of thing. But don't think I'm going to go run 100. Start with maybe 30, you know, and remember there's a lot of walking. Like we would run the flats and power hike right. the hills. Mm-hmm. Great. All, all awesome info. And then the last one I had um, was because this is a, a big focus of mine is helping people find what I like to call their fasted fitness zone. And that is where in, in your fast, where you feel the best for the act for the, ex, the exercise and the activity that you spend the most of your time doing. Um, so where in your fat, like I know for me, um, I like to run. I feel really good and I feel my best between 18 and 24 hours. Um, so I'm always super curious about where people feel their strongest, their fastest, mm. their most yeah, endurance. So uh, I would say fasting. I normally am running starting at uh, maybe 14 to 16 hours. You know, we, we eat fairly early. We eat four, four o'clock or so. And mm-hmm. usually out running by say six or seven the next morning. So that's just because we prefer that schedule. That's what we've been doing for a very long time now. And even when I was working, that was pretty much what I was doing as well. But I can then go out and run for several hours and I, I feel fine the whole time. So I, I don't feel like I have a lot of experience starting activity later into my fast. I, done it a few times and I've not had a problem with it to me mm-hmm. once the activity gets going and especially once I get the endorphins going and you know start to get a little high off of it um, then I'm fine even if I have started later but uh, so for me anywhere between probably 14 and 24 hours uh, seems to work just fine right and I want to just put a little plug in here sometimes you're at 15, 16 hours fasted and it's time to do your workout. You might feel like I really don't have very much energy and my exercise just gets started. And once you get going, it'll, the energy might pop in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exercise. Uh, your, again, when we said this earlier, exercise, your body knows what it needs. And if you give your body the opportunity, it will go internally yeah, so- yeah, most so of the time and find 10 in what the morning and then I came home and did some chores um, and, so, um, yeah, and I, went out just for a little hike at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I was at like 20 hours already. And I, I was like, Oh, I'm a little tired, but I just had some coffee and had some salt and water. And once I got going on the hike, I felt amazing. And that was going to my one, you know, I made it through to my one meal later, like four 30, I think. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that, I don't do that a lot. It just was one of those days where that's what my schedule was. 
Okay, Bill. So, so if there's any more awesome. questions, um, uh, scientific questions, uh, my husband, Jim Porter, he's in our Facebook community. Mm-hmm. And I just want to uh, make sure we have a disclaimer here. Jim is not an MD. He's not a medical doctor. He's a PhD and he knows about science and research. And so we just want the disclaimer that we're not giving medical advice. We're just giving advice on how to be a more critical reader. All right. All right. Definitely, one hundred percent. And then, uh, Jim, just just if you have any questions for either of us that you want to ask before we wrap up here, I wanted to throw I, that I out think there. I'm, just, we've been well, asking I, you I all the questions. Lisa, so, um, I, <laughs> we we answer all those questions pretty regularly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. I, right. Thank you. Good. Oh, I just all right. I just want to make sure we get everything, get all those bases covered. Strength training, Bill, and Jim does a lot of strength training, and we feel it's really important. So we want to make sure people don't think all we do is run, run, run. We do other activities. Yeah. Right, and you know, yeah. cardio is strength training, and strength training can be done for cardio. Yep. It's you It's all. It's all thank about you. balance. Thank you, Lisa and Jim. And it was great to meet you. And, um, you know, just have fun running. Thank you. Bye.